Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club podcast, an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. I am Aubrey Hicks, Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and today we're going to talk about body horror. We are reading a book of short stories called Eat the Mouth That Feeds You by Caribbean Fragosa. With me to talk about this today, um, please note there will be spoilers, <laughs> are uh, two wonderful friends of the podcast. Um, first, Caroline, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Caroline Bala, Executive Director of the Price Center for Social Innovation here at USC and frequent reader with Aubrey. <laughs> and Brittany Shannon, it's been... Um, a couple months, at least, since you've been on. Yeah. But I'm so happy that you're here to talk with us about this book. I'm so happy to be back, and I love this particular entree. <laughs> like, come on, 2021. Or, goodbye, 2021. 20, yeah. Anyway, um, I am Brittany Shannon. I got my PhD, my master's and my PhD in urban planning at USC. And since then, I have been an adjunct professor at local schools teaching various uh, urban planning courses and I love this podcast and writing books too are you writing oh yes yes I am uh, co-authoring a book about um, kind of like reconfiguring the narrative in um, urban studies artists are typically associated with aggravating gentrification if not initiating it altogether and but there are cases and they are quite homegrown of uh, where artists embed themselves in communities and act as conduits of social justice. And um, while we may not be able to stop gentrification, capital is all in consuming oftentimes. <laughs> um, there is uh, a lot to be said for this socially engaged art and how it does have multiplier effects. So uh, speaking of socially engaged art, <laughs> I feel like this very short book of short stories says a lot about the time that we're living in. Um, I sort of want to go a little bit backwards. Um, I usually sort of end with a set of four questions, but I want to start with, did you like the book? Which is usually one of our last, but I think that's a good way to get into this one. I really liked this book. I, um, I'm not a huge short story reader. Um, I mean, I read the odd short story here and there, but um, rarely do I read collections of short stories. And so it was a wonderful, you know, chance to dive into um, a collection of short stories. I thought the writing was, um, you know, it was really like lyrical and beautiful. I have a lot of questions. I was so confused <laughs> a lot of the time. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought the um, sense of like... Um, like place uh, was really neat. Um, and I read it, it resonated with me. I felt a lot, I, I could recognize a lot of the stuff that she was talking about. Yeah. And Brenny, you listened to the book? I did. I listened to it. Um, that's how I get to read books. <laughs> um, and I like, it's real. I find while I have uh, kind of some quibbles with the, the narrative expression because I, as I was listening to it, I was like, I would have read that differently. And then I went back in my Kindle and I actually found an italic on yeah. a word that I was like, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but still in all, I mean, the, just the language of making 
things that are biological and earthen and really on the verge of grotesque. So lovely. Mm. And she manages this really strange kind of um, combination of experiences in the page. And I really dig it. I really like it a lot. I also enjoyed this book a lot. I mean, I, I had sort of gotten to it from the review from Miriam Gerba. She also wrote a book called Mean, and she's really kind of amazing on Twitter. And so she recommended this book and she's blurbed on the back. And I had not heard of this author, but now I'm hooked. I had some trouble reading it and not because I didn't think it was beautiful or didn't like it. It was just some of the themes are pretty hard, (laughs) really deep. There is a lot of body horror in here, which I think is not unusual body horror. It seems like anyone who is a woman would have a sense of some of this body horror. Am I, am I on the right track there? I think absolutely. And you know what I have to say, like, I, I should backtrack. I, while I have a couple of like, you know, notes for the reader, I thought she was great otherwise. Um, and it was a lot easier to quote unquote, read the book because someone else was doing the work for me. Um, I think it would have been harder for me to read as you say, but having someone say the words for some reason, it was even prettier. Mm. I'm going to have to check out the audiobook then. Yeah. You guys are using the word body horror. Is that like something that is, is known as a genre or like something people talk about? I mean, I don't know if it's, it's technically a genre, but body horror is sort of, it's a sort of, maybe it's a subgenre of horror where, the 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 grotesque the disturbance comes from the human body so like uh, you know in many ways i would think zombie movies would be a little bit of body horror in a particular way it's used a ton in film if you think about like cronenberg and because we actually like watch these visceral things take place and so yeah body horror is a thing and so it's it's different from torture porn Oh, yeah. Which, um, so like body horror is kind of held up as something as a choice rather than a salacious cop out. Interesting. I mean, in this, the use of that kind of horror, that kind of, um, I'm like, it, it's something that sort of wants to push you away while you're, while it's really connecting with you, sort of. Um, at, at least that's how I feel. Like it, it connects with me in this both visceral way, you know, that it's it's in my mind, but I, um, I'm also, you know, those mirror neurons are sort of going off. <laughs> but this, you know, I felt like this was a real feminist collection of short stories and that uh, the body horror is part of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't really thought about that term or used that term, um, but it's a great way to describe a lot of the things that are happening in this book. But yeah, yeah. And I do agree. Uh, yeah, I agree. No, I agree. I think it was, um, I think it was a feminist book. So I, I'm saying horror and uh, over and over and over again, but I also, I didn't find this depressing or sad. It still felt hopeful and beautiful to me. I thought the language that she was using, the fact that she was getting so grotesque 
was incredibly powerful. You know, like even when, even in Vicious Ladies, when she is so contemptuous of the other women, like that is actually the most unreliable narrator I think we find in the book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the, sorry, just, I'm going to jump all around. In Muemero, Muemero, that, that language I thought was amazing. Yeah. And spoiler alert, it's a description of a, like a post-mortem intentional uh, desiccation and degradation of the body. And a woman is actually considering it as it's happening to her. And there's just like this vomit scene. And she's like spectacular because she owns her body. It's a choice she's making the whole time. Yeah. And there's nothing um, wrong about it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think the, some, some parts that were like the theme that I thought that was the most, I mean, the, so I, like I said, I enjoyed the book, but I was really depressed by the um, idea that, you know, that all the men were drunks and they beat their, all the Theos were drunk and they um, only lifted a finger, you know, inopportune times. Right. And, and I think that it was a, it was, it was in almost every story. Like the men yeah. were either absent or vicious. And so I, I thought that was, that depressed me. Um, it also resonated with me. Yeah. You know, I also understood where she was coming from and what she was saying. Um, but it made me really, the truth of it made me really sad. Yeah. Yes, that is right on the money. I'm thinking, you know, the first, the fourth story, which is, um, what is it? Lumberjack mom. Um, mm-hmm. That one, I think, was the like the most depressing for me. And I had a lot yeah. of trouble sort of getting past it. And just part of it, you know, in that final part where she's cutting down the lime tree, it was just, um, that part was heartbreaking. Just really heartbreaking. That story was so much different than all the other ones, right? Right? Yeah. I think it was a real, um, and it's the one that actually is the least like bodily of all of them. And yet it's the one that, if you will, kind of cut closest to the bone for me. And as the as we as I kept listening, I was like, God, I'm happy protecting was first <laughs> because it was heartbreaking. Yeah. And this woman, she's and, and Caroline, to your point, like there's only one story in which a man is centered. Otherwise, they're always on the periphery, yeah, being layabouts at best, um, or just fully like. Um, you know, abusive or murderous. And, um, and in this case, like, yeah, she has not much kind. She does not much have many kind things to say about the men in that particular world. No. And what is the world, right? So is it, uh, so I really understood it as um, Southern California, right? Um, Sort of, um, I grew up in Oxnard, California. So Oxnard is um, north of the coast, um, north of Santa Barbara on the coast. And it is, um, uh, the way I describe it, it's a small town, right? But there's 240,000 people there, so it's not it's not really a small town by any other stra- any other place. <laughs> and it's where all the strawberries are grown. In um, it's where the strawberries are grown. So they have a strawberry festival every year. Oxnard is, you know, predominantly Latino, but if you look at the numbers, it's probably 50-50, maybe um, mm-hmm. uh, white and Latino. Um, I always joke that I was the only Indian person there. It's not exactly true, but it's close, you know. <laughs> Uh, so I really saw a lot of Oxnard or this sort of Chicana 
culture in this book in a way that it was very familiar to me, especially uh, Vicious Ladies. Yes. That short story could have been, I mean, I felt like I knew those girls. Well, Vicious Ladies were a thing. Oh, the actual. In the 90s. Yeah, there was the Vicious Ladies. There was an all-girl, like, uh, kind of a gang, if you will, in in El Monte. Because like her stories are, and she even has, like, a book that she's co- edited called east of east that's out right now and um yeah so i thought that was another wild thing is that she apparently has been kind of collecting these essays since she was a grad student and someone was like you gotta publish these things so they kind of come with her over the years and i'd be fascinated to know when was written what was written when there was definitely a sense of 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 the 90s, 80s, 90s in Vicious Ladies, you know, um, the Aquanet, the teasing of the bangs, the, yeah, <laughs> mini skirts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that felt, yeah, it, it did. I, I think I did not grow up in, uh, in Southern California. Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania Dutch country. So, but at the same time, I did feel like I knew these characters, like I knew these characters that I had seen them mm-hmm. represented sort of at that time. Yeah, I, I could see the eyebrows. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, what did you think of them? What did you think of that book? Or excuse me, that S story and the narrator? I, you know, I think you're, I, I, I think I agree with you that that narrator is one of the, the least reliable because she's so judgy and not uh, as self-aware as she thinks. Um mm-hmm. But it's clear that she's not self-aware because she keeps saying that she doesn't know what she would be doing if the vicious ladies didn't sort of absorb her in, you know, Mm -hmm. she she doesn't really have a sense of direction on her own, but she thinks that she's better than, than everything. I kind of loved that. I kind of loved the Samira. I mean, you know, when she's like, I've, you know, I've been watching you this whole time and, you know, like we took you in because you needed us. You know, it's, and it's so true. She, she was, yeah. Yeah. So I love Samira because she's the villain and she is uttered as the, like the word that comes out of nitrous oxide. It's not, not, it's not Nos, it's Samira. And so she is the villain. And at the end, the villain is the one who, well, and throughout you discover that these women are all basically like Samira Stringer Bell, like she's a business, <laughs> she's um, like a like a, a genius businesswoman. And um, was it Patricia or is Patricia the name of the uh, uh, narrator? But there's no. the friend. The friend who got her into the, the vicious lady who's like this, al- like you know, casual um, genius at algebra, and so she's like she says that she's better than all of these women, but she is at best on par with all of them, mm-hmm. and in um, in terms of intelligence, and yet they know who they are. They have they're better at observation. They're better at solidarity. And there, and you know, when um, Samira is like, you don't even like your own mom. And yet, the, and the, this is not to say that the narrator is somehow like some total jerk. Like she does, like she goes to college and then she comes back and she's like, now what? And she feels disempowered. And that's, you know, and the, and for me, the story really turned at the, at the very end when she's getting off the phone and her, her aunt's like, you could send some money. 
And she's like, okay, well, I guess I'm, this is how I can do that. I just love that book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I loved it too. I was scared of Samira. Yeah, I was scared of her. Um, I, I know her. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I remember her from high school. And um, I remember, um, yeah, man, I remember her. So I was scared. I, I was going to say, there's only been one time in my life that I've actually been physically scared for my life. And it was someone like Samira um, when I first moved here. Not men, not, um, it, but, you know, and it, it's somebody that I, you know, I could see just in her eyes that she was brilliant and mean and also incredibly protective. Yeah. So I don't know how much to say on this, but I, um, my first job in high school was in pizza, at Pizza Hut. So I worked at Pizza awesome. Hut uh, when I was a senior <laughs> in high school. And um, I worked with all kinds of people at Pizza Hut, you know, in Oxford. And um, one of the women was, uh, you know, a veterana, right? An old homie. So she'd been around for a while. And uh, I said something to her one day. I sassed her. I didn't even think about it. You know, I just was was running my mouth. <laughs> and she said, you know what? Uh, no one talks to me like that. And I was like, holy shit. Like, what did I just do? Like, I, you know, she scared. I mean, she scared me. Like, I was like, what am I thinking? You know, like, so there's a lot of power. You know, I think there's a lot of power in the way that, I don't know, there was a lot of power in that culture. There mm-hmm. still is. But for me, it resonates with the late 90s and or the mid 90s. And I remember you know, you just did not mess around with those girls, you know? I think the the solidarity, too, that you mentioned, Brittany, is is the most beautiful piece of that. And, you know, it also, you know, really brings out that, you know, you have these ideas of, you know, we as a culture have these ideas of what gangs are about, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the police will tell you it's it's for one thing or another that people become, you know, involved in gangs, but you, you read something like this and you're like, this is why people join gangs because those are the people that have your back in a world that wants to push you away. You know, those are the people that have your back. That's the economic opportunity. I mean, that's the story. That's that story, right? If she goes to college and she still comes back and she's still running the, you know, Nas for the party. It's not his mom. And that's the depression. That was a depressing piece too for me. Yeah. I also knew she was never getting out of that game. Mm-hmm. There is no getting out. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be careful when I talk because I don't want to perpetuate stereotypes. But there was a lot of, um, even there's a lot of stereotypes in this book. And she wrote it and she knows what she's talking about, you know? So I, I just want to be careful when I, when I talk about things like gangs or that sort of culture because, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not an expert in it, but she is, the writer is. Yeah, totally. And to, I mean, like to the point of like police, police have gangs. <laughs> they're, the, they're the worst ones. <laughs> yes. Google LSD. Jesus, the yeah. sheriff. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think what I really liked about this though, that, you know, there was this, you're right. There, there are the stereotypes, and you know we we tend to create stereotypes for for some reason, right? But you know, I think this narrator allowed us to see, you know, beyond that mm-hmm. to you know these people as individuals as well. You know, even though she had contempt for them, like 
you know, she also, you know, really admired Patricia's math ability and ability to sort of hold court without saying a word, you know. She couldn't not. You know, like, that's like this is just like an objectively remarkable thing that Patricia is doing. And, you know, it's in like, she may hold these women in contempt. And I think like in terms of leading on stereotypes, the description of these women is so lurid, right? But the way she, the, also the narrator cannot not describe what the, like she is reporting on what these women are saying and what these women say is really what elevates them almost like I would say above the narrator in terms of their self-aware, their um, sense of solidarity, their sense of community, their, um, you know, like <laughs> to jump to the, the uh, story eat the mouth that feeds you like there's you know this loving willingness openness to cannibalistic relationships so that you have a continuation of legacy so these women are remarkable and you know no matter how the narrator might describe them they present they put themselves where they belong I think that's the the sort of flip at the end of the story too, where Samira gets to to we hear from Samira in this sort of um, I don't know sort of like the villain has has its say she <laughs> sort of has her yeah. say, but what it what comes out of the villain's mouth is is not villainy in so many ways, and you know I was actually thinking about that in terms of in a little bit of ways you know that the narrator is not white. But there is a little bit of a white gaze in the narrator, sort of, you know, judging and looking and not really, you know, saying there's like one way to do things and yet not seeing in herself the same. It just, just the lack of introspection and the, the sort of judginess without really looking deeper than the surface. Does that make sense? Someone on the outside looking in, plus because she got the college degree, right? Right. So that- gave her the different insight or made her separate from her community. But that's also this, like this idea that, you know, having a college education somehow does make you better in, in the society, you know, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with this. I just, um, there's so much in this, in this few pages of this story, there's so much going on. I would like to say that there's actually, he got his PhD in, um, the sociology department at USC and his name is Alfredo Fuente and um, great. And he did this incredible, I remember when he was starting his participant um, observation, he's at a place called Self-Help Matters in Boyle Heights. And he found himself really much because after the gold mine and with um, all, all the art and interest in art in terms of the cultural economy. And then there was that huge uh, controversy and somehow remarkable pushback against the galleries that tried to move in to Boyle Heights, which is, you know, (laughs) to the earlier point about how capital usually wins, didn't this time, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. And it was all about community solidarity. Mm-hmm. One day wrote this amazing article called The Lighter Shade of Brown, in which he talks about what's called gentrification, which is in gentrification, you have a lot of markers for what is uh, gent- like how you track it in the census. You know, of course, we think about household income, but land value, um, ownership versus renting. But the best marker is education level. 
And in fact, where gentrification, the term came from was in, in London itself, where it was, you know, predominantly white anyway. So the first gentrifiers were white in white places. And gentrification in like, there are two views of it. One is that like, okay, some, and how it happens is that people from Boyle Heights or the community, they go and they get education. And then they come back and they like open up a bar or a coffee shop or um, whatever. And the, uh, their attitude is that like they're in charge of the, um, the change of their neighborhood and therefore identification is a good thing. The other view is that when you don't have ownership enough of your own community, then you are never really in charge and you are never really the true beneficiary of na- neighborhood change. And that can go overwhelm you and you will lose uh, whatever power you had in the first place. And Wante racializes it because it also in, sorry, I'm going on, but in urban studies and anthropology, um, George Lipset. Uh, American studies scholar, he describes what's called the white spatial imaginary, which is this like where um, white things and mainstream uh, like taste and popular taste, they echo what is really a bougie whiteness. And the detractors from gentrification are like, this is just more white spatial imaginary coming into our neighborhood. And so to your point, Aubrey about like there is a like a cultural capital and a whiteness that maybe the um, the narrator has I'm not saying she's racist but at all but I am saying that she has their descriptions that she makes are quite contemptuous and they are perhaps quite reflective of a, like the internalization of the white spatial imaginary as it's embodied in people. Yes, I put that much better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you put that much better than I did. Thank you. It's Alfredo Juante. Look him up. He's incredible. He's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, it does also make me think of uh, a couple months back, we read um, Not a Nation of Immigrants. And it is, you know, how white supremacy can make settlers of anyone, of any race. It's very good. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is amazing. So, but that's what I, I kept thinking back to that with this, with this narrator. And I just, you know, the way, the way it turns around in the end, I think is, is quite beautiful. And that's the part that I really liked that Samira, you know, sort of had the last word, right? Yeah. I was kind of pumping my fist at her again, because I'm in my car and I'm listening and I'm like, go Samira. Yeah. <laughs> that was really, yeah. Okay. So you brought up eat the mouth that feeds you. Yeah. That one is wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause she's, she's literally talking about cannibalism, like you said, but it's about memory and legacy and female familial bonds in a in a way that I've never really thought about it that way. It was really I want to say it was disturbing, but it never felt dis- like it it was disturbing, but it never felt painful. Yeah, that's nicely. Uh, I like that distinction. What did you cuz I am not a mother, so you two I mean, I don't I don't know. I, you know, my relationship with my mother is is complicated like they all are, but how did this story <laughs> Make you guys feel. You guys, I said you guys. I'm sorry. You. It's okay. Wonderful women, dudes. Dude, I guess I didn't love that story. Some of the ones that where it was sort of um, 
a little too magic realism. I love magic realism, but I, yeah, it was like the, maybe it's the body thing. That's why I keep going back to that. Maybe that's the thing that I thought was weird. I, so let me say this from the start. <laughs> One of the things I don't like about short stories is um, that um, you're just, I mean, as I understand it, you're just, they're supposed to make you feel something, right? And so I try to under, I try to use short stories in that way. Like, what did I feel when I was reading this? Because if I try to figure it out or like oh, yeah. figure out what's happening, I get sort of um, turned off or annoyed. Yeah, there's right? not enough so, there. It's like a poem. <laughs> supposed to feel it. So that's what I tried to do in this book so that I could like, you know, like be present and not get all annoyed. So that one made me feel, um, so that one I took as um, the way you described it as memory. So I tried to just use the eating as a way of um, consuming the culture and the the person of, and when she talks about not eating her mother, I thought that was really powerful. And I thought that that was the beauty of that story. When she talks about how she would take a bite out of her mom now, if she could. So that's how that's the, for me, that was because I think the way we raise our kids or the way I raise my kids or my generation raises our kids is we let our kids eat us. You know, like our kids are like the most like so important, like the most precious commodity. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I thought a lot about about that um, and how um, maybe we should have or should be eating our mothers now if we have a chance to because she doesn't have a chance anymore. Yeah, I mean, when I, you know, uh, I've said this about my kids when they were breastfeeding, and I have friends who said that, and like, you're the baby is eating you alive, like, um, and, and like, I guess I like, he just like the whole process of you know motherhood on the biological end is so like undeniably biological and so the like her language was actually strangely familiar you know when she talks about like crunching in the bone I was like but I'll listen (laughs) (laughs) and you know like and and yet there was also I was reading uh like when she was a kid she did eat clay so like this is all stuff that is both magical realism and you know, actually this autobiographical expression. Mm -hmm. And apparently when she was pregnant with her own kid, her first, perhaps, um, the doctor was worried about lead because she ate so much because she had eaten as a kid. Yeah. And so like, um, and so again, this is like, you know, this isn't in the story, but I like the idea that the biology is legacy for however long it's in your system. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And um, I just, the, you know, when she's, her daughter's eating all the pictures and like, she's getting all the ink on her mouth and her, the mother's tone is so admiring. Yeah. I like how she imagines that the, the that the words are sort of papering her insides or. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. It, um, you know, there's all this different theories about where like where physically memory is that it's not just you know in the brain that it's also in all of your cells right and how sort of generational trauma and generational joy can be passed down we talk a lot about trauma but I think you know the the photographs and the stories that you know the daughter is consuming it you know, makes the mother sort of reaware what what you said, Caroline, that, you know, if she had had a chance to eat her mother, she would have. And I just, it was just really 
beautiful in some ways. Yeah, that was a good note. Um, Aubrey, um, like our, if you do have a child biologically, their cells are still inside of you, Mm -hmm. like forever. Like, so they're little parts of their, like, I'm obviously my body is in my children's body, but theirs is Mm -hmm. also mine. Yeah. It's really neat. But if you, if you couple this story with the next one, which is the one about the drugs oh, yeah. and uh, abortions, uh, that was like, that was the one that I had the hardest time with. That was the most biologically unsettling for me to read. Um, but they really go nicely together um, in terms of what, what the, describing the body and the way that the baby is, you know, in, uh, is growing in your body. That was, it was terrifying. Yeah. I think I put that one out of my head. I think I might've too. Well, one is because the, you know, the former uh, that like the eat them out of you is so full of agency. Mm. Mm-hmm. And whereas the, um, and the, what's the, what, what's the one called? What's the next one called? I like the title. Mysterious Bodies. Okay, yeah. So, like, it's an invader. It's par- like the relationship is parasitic. Um, and in fact, in one case of the, like, one description of a uh, young woman, she doesn't even know it's there. Yeah. Right? And in the, um, our heroine, like, she's trying to get rid of it in what is, you know, a body destroying process. I think it was also particularly poignant right now. You know, in terms of, well, I don't have to spell it out. It's obvious. Um, I think that might also play into why it was so disturbing Mm -hmm. to me. Terrible. It was terrible. Yeah. And again, (laughs) she ends with, it's uh, page 50. The last sentence is her skull cracked, her cranium was splitting, pulling into a knowing void, a relentless hole, an unquestionable core. A wonderful exhalation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys think she survived? I was just going to ask you if anybody actually dies in this book or if I, if we just, we think that they do. (laughs) That's a good question. I think, you know, that's interesting. I think we see people post-mortem, like the hero of one character, one story, um, or in memory, but I don't know. I don't know. It's so hard to, when you, when she ends with that phrase, wonderful exhalation, you know, that sort of contentment or satisfaction after all that pain. I, I don't know. I I didn't know. I don't know either. I, um, I don't think she died. I also wasn't sure if the girl in the end died. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't sure if a lot of people died when we were reading them. I, I just yeah. wasn't sure. Like the funny one about the musician, uh, the yeah. singer, <laughs> that guy, I mean, that he gets eaten by a lion on stage. That was all, um, that was like hilarious. Um, but that was all like in his head, right? I mean, I just don't know. I was like, what's really happening here? Oh, yeah. Was that all in his head? I didn't even think that. I don't know. That's a good point. Hmm. That story just in exist- its existence in a book that is so otherwise woman-centered fascinated me. Yeah, what was happening there? The dad was the same dad, though. <sighs> So maybe because he was, maybe he was gay, the uh, singer. So maybe that's how that works. I don't know. You know, there's two or, or at least people, men around him thought he was. Right. I thought he wasn't the ranchero. Yeah. Whether or not. Right. Yeah. Because he was actually, he had the nerve to be in touch with his emotions and feel. Yeah. Yeah. So the story uh, with the decaying body, 
That one, I feel like it was harder for me to understand what was going on. It was more about feeling because, you know, I thought perhaps she had actually died until she gets back in her body and walks it around because, yeah, you you can't actually walk around in your body when you're not there. I, like, have no idea what was going on in that story, and I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I liked it a lot. But I couldn't tell if, like, she was, was she dying because she wasn't connected to her body? Was she, because, I mean, it is clearly about a death of sorts, but is it more of a psychological, is it, you know, in that... You know, she's using the physical decay to talk about what happens when you don't live in the body. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. So here's the thing I didn't understand. I mean, I didn't understand a lot of it. I I sort of thought she was, I thought it was um, symbolic. Yeah. I thought she was symbolically dying in front of everybody. But I also thought, um, we don't know the reason. Yeah. So, like, what I mean by that is... Um, what happened to separate her from her family so much that she was dead to them? And, you know, what was so radical? I assume something radical happened that she, you know, became somebody else, you know, in a way that didn't work for the rest of her family. See what I mean about short stories? Yeah. I try to read into them too much and make sense of them. And maybe you're just supposed to enjoy them. But I think, you know, I think that's the the beauty of them. When, a, when you have a really good short story and you come away with all these questions, I mean, that's where the, I was going to say that's where the art happens. That's where some of the art happens, right? That your relationship with what you're reading um, and the things that you're thinking about and how, you know, ideas from someone that we've never met are sort of taking life in your... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Because, you know, this is one where, you know, clearly she talks a lot about the men circling her bodies, her body, and the women being inside the house, but she's somehow not inside the house. Mm. Interesting. And the men are completely apathetic. Mm. You know, they, he, uh, he touches her wrist, he touches her neck, and he's like, ugh. Um, and then, and so, and she also has, like, throughout the stories, like, there's the young boys in it are, like, foolish, and except for the, um, my mom is a lumberjack story. Which is, and I realize it's not to tell you a lie, I apologize. Um, <laughs> they're... Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's almost a loss of sensitivity and she's kind of documenting that like I feel like because you know she bumps into her cousin and he's like oh hey and there's like an awareness but also a, lo a loss of an aw awareness and then the you know the grandmother is at the center and again this is like I was just kind of like why are we focusing on certain relationships or vignettes like her, um, her cousin or her aunt, who finally is bringing his bike out and bringing her partner to a family affair, and there is like a lovers' quarrel, and like that is a thing that is unresolved, and the grandmother is holding her rosary beads, so like there's like this tension of generations and cultural norms and so forth, all of it happening, and she and her mother, meanwhile, are connecting like they never have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was almost like she did it so she could be there in front of her mother. So her mother would see her. So what was the death? <laughs> in thinking about gender and sexuality, did this have to do with being trans or? Right. 
Mm. being gender fluid. You know, I don't really Mm. know, but there was something that, that made me think like, she's clearly the body is not dying, but there is something with the mind body connection. That's not really working. That's that's right. You know, the, the men are apathetic. Are they apathetic because now, you know, she is, he, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But there, there seemed to be something about sexuality to me, but I, I couldn't really quite pin it down. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. you couldn't pin it down either. But even though you know it's it's my death, it didn't, um, you know, and the body decays, it didn't feel it didn't feel like an ending. I mean, you know, like it was the last story, and yet when I was thinking about it, it, it isn't the last story in my head because it didn't feel like an ending. Does that, <laughs> I have too, yeah. many, too many feelings and less, you know, real <laughs> thoughts about this book. But I really like your, your, your guys take on it because this is a story of transfiguration. Yeah. Like the, the narrator has never been so inside their own body and never felt it so completely as they're saying goodbye to it. Yeah. And as they're documenting its changes. And I think that that is, yeah. And there's a reason, like, they're outside, but she is out there or out there with, by, with their mom for the first time. Yeah, which makes me, I mean, because, you know, I've been saying she, but I actually don't yeah. know. Yeah, no. I, we don't I, know. I don't no, know. we do. We do know. We, we do, do know. Okay. Yeah, her mom okay. calls her Miha. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's why I'm I'm like, there's got to be a reason that I'm saying she, um, but I know we don't know. We don't know her name. Do we? We don't know anybody's name. No, it's hard. I don't think that, I don't think the narrator almost ever has a name. I'm not going to like challenge you to find one, but I'm pretty sure. Very rarely. (laughs) Oh yeah. I don't know. But the first line of that last story, we were was everyone's moment comes eventually. Like what a great line of a sentence. Like, mm-hmm. how do you not want to continue reading? Yeah, I really love this book. Is there a story that we haven't talked about that that y'all want to? Um, the one that I like the the people inside the grove and the penis balloon <laughs> the penis and the farmers. Yes, because it starts home. comic. Yes, and then it is genocidal. Yes, that one didn't feel familiar to me at all. I just wanted yeah. to put that out there. That did not have a SoCal vibe. I was, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. No, you know, it vaguely felt like it was generational, but it didn't really, um, yeah, it didn't really affect me as in the same way. I think I was more confused by this one. Yeah, I mean, I know that like, there is, like this one I thought was the most representational, like the, uh, the most metaphorical, mm-hmm. actually. And, in, in, you know, there's the, the one of the farmers, the child is the psychopath, and that's the psychopathy of the what I presume to be the settler. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Because they, you know, um, they were like, "Where does this kid keep coming up with the dead animals?" And the farmers don't want to ask. And and yet the people inside the grove were like, "We've been watching this kid murder animals for a long time." Yeah, and that was really. I but I don't understand the balloon, I don't get the balloon. at all <laughs> because that's funny. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it like, initiated, it, it like, uh, it, it first such rage. Mm-hmm. A pink balloon, this, the size of a cow that looks like a penis. What on earth? I have no idea. I don't, like I said, that one was, I was, I was befuddled. 
Mm-hmm. And they took it out as like the time and the place. Like, okay, so if you've got like people in a grove and farmers, it feels like it might be a historical piece. And yet she specifically places it in contemporary day because they use a drone to take the balloon down. Mm-hmm. Right. That was the one that where I was like, oh, the drone. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ideal. Maybe like old and new colliding or, um, you know, the, the theme around the, um, the grapes having always been there, I thought was interesting. Yeah. Like the grapes were always there, but now they're all, um, you know, they're used for different things and they're hardened. Yeah. I couldn't make heads or tails of it, I guess. Yeah. there. I feel like there was a lot of, a lot of disparate things. So the penis balloon, you know, at first I was thinking, you know, is this, you know, just generational and how there is a backlash to, you know, the younger generations being more open about talking about gender and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that in some cases it is a, a big F you, you know, um, which was what the, the penis balloon was, was meant to be. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a big cow sized F you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So weird. And, yeah. But also, you know, the, the grapes made me think, you know, that, um, I've been following um, someone on Twitter and Instagram, and I will I'll put the link in there because um, right this second I can't remember uh, his handle. Um, but he is about uh, native gardening in in California, and particularly he does the thing about um, he does a class about uh, food, and he talks about the the native grapes and how you know how settlers and sort of Americanization of everything has destroyed the the natural greenery of Southern California that it actually used to be less desert than it is now. Um, right now I'm picturing like uh, he showed an arbor where he planted native grapes and it's like this beautiful grapevine of native grapes, which are um, a little bit smaller and have more seeds and don't taste like the grapes that we've genetically engineered to to be grape juice and wine. I was going to change the subject for a second. Please, please. please. <laughs> um, the one we didn't, t- so I want to talk about, yeah. I want to talk about the tortilla one at the end. Um, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, but Ooh, yeah. uh, Fatima and Ini, or Ini. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it's my favorite. See, that's another one where, was someone really dead? I think Fati. I don't know that Fati was ever alive. Wait. Fati? In my mind, that. Yeah, Fati, like, um, this is this is the one where I didn't care so much because I just love that fate in the end is, like, holding innocence. And I just love the way, like, um, Innie is like, this is all, like, who's to say yeah. who's uh, the revelation? And I just really, like, I like how um, her powers are malevolent. As well as like transcendent and beautiful, and you know the I don't know I just I I really loved their friendship and Innie's and the way it kind of went back between you know Innie's perspective and then Fatih's perspective where Fatih's like kind of afraid of her and she's like oh no no it, it I just I don't for some reason that story hummed with me even though I don't know exactly what was going on. <laughs> didn't care <laughs> you know i i was just going with the flow until the end and you know the the end scene 
Mm-hmm. That's when I started thinking, was any actually even in existence? So mm-hmm. I, you know, so it's so funny because uh, like to me, Fati, you know, is flesh and bone and it's any that is the the question. And for me, mm-hmm. you know, towards the end, I'm thinking, you know, is it just, you know, is she just an imaginary friend or yeah, is she just an imaginary friend? Yeah, that's what I read at the end too. I was like, oh, that's her dolly that she's made up yeah. to be a companion through these these times um, with a little bit of magic. I mean, she's both. I also thought she yeah. was a saint. Yeah. Who was a murder mm-hmm. girl, you know, and, you know, caused a red ants to hurt that little boy. I thought she could do that. But I also thought she was a doll that she yeah. carried around. And I loved that. I loved that she was a dolly in the end. Which is mm-hmm. part of the reason why I think the that everybody bullied her a little bit, too. Um, I know. Um, I The thing that I was confused about is that... Um, you know, Innie is very concerned about the father, but I couldn't tell if the father was abusive. I mean, Innie's father was. But Fati says it too. Yeah. Fati's father beats her mother. Okay. Even when the mother was holding the sewing scissors, she thought it would be her dad who did the killing. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yet I thought this was really interesting. Like, Innie could not figure out why Fati won't let her. Yeah. Basically, she's asking for permission. It's almost less of a favor to Fati as it is almost a favor to any if she could destroy Fati's father. And then, and then I love that the passage where it's like Fati's Fati can't imagine her father um, being gone, and then she proceeds to describe all these terrible ways he could die. <laughs> yep, that's <laughs> amazing. She was like, I couldn't. She couldn't imagine. Oh, I need to find the line. I guess I, I guess I didn't ever think that Fatih wasn't a real live girl, but for a while there, I thought that she was kind of the angel to any who was the angel. I don't know. There was a, like a, a more in the end, there's like this caretaking relationship that of any, but I think your, your guys like take that she's holding onto a doll. It makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> they both make sense. It all makes sense. Like the devil on her shoulder, right? Right. You know, Sente is the devil on her shoulder. Mm-hmm. Say, yeah. There's some, I feel like there's something with the name too. Yeah. Which is exactly what you just said, Caroline. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think um, what I love most about this book is that, you know, it is 120 pages and there's so, so much. Um, so many questions, so so much to think about, so many different characters. It's, I don't know, it's a great collection of short stories. Yeah, um, it really they was. go really well together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I read the line about Fati not being able to imagine her father? <laughs> but Fati could not imagine getting rid of her father, not into thin air, not in a vat of acid, not stuck in the middle of a train crossing, not falling <laughs> off a very tall ladder, not severed to pieces in a terrible car accident. I think you could imagine it a little. <laughs> imagine a little bit. That's awesome. You know, I think it also, that one um, made me think about, um, there's a new book out that I haven't read all the way through, but it's um, The Case for Rage. Um, why, whenever I want to say somebody's name, I cannot remember their name. Um, I'm going to say uh, Maisha Cherry, but I think that might be wrong. I will... I'll put it in the link because I can't. You got it. I just Googled. 
Okay, good. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I can, I can, you know, sort of imagine her face, but I can't think of her name. And it, it makes me think that, you know, in sort of very religious families, you know, there are these very strict rules on behavior, you know, and it doesn't have to be religious. You know, I'm saying religious because, you know, uh, any is sort of uh, portrayed as a saint, right? That there's this sort of rigid set of feelings that girls and women are allowed to have, you know, and that any is, is the rage that she has and uh, who wants to protect. And sometimes you have to, you know, that, that Fatih is sort of giving herself permission to have those feelings. Mm-hmm. In that she's, you know, this sort of, you know, imaginary friend, but also a saint, but also a doll, you know, like, I don't know. And in a sense, any, or like, rage is kind of a define the defining quality. Yeah, for sure. So. She's no saint, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like a murder. And what she calls, girl. like, she calls bullshit on sainthood anyway. Mm-hmm. She's like, I've been around a long time. People are assholes. <laughs> and yet they need each other. I don't get it. <laughs> uh, yeah. What is the line she says about, she talks about animals and how, and you know, animals aren't any more noble than humans and humans mm-hmm. are just animals too. And I, it's my favorite line. It's my favorite passage, actually. <laughs> you want to read it? Okay. Where is it? Uh, okay. You guys continue. I'll find it. So the story that you wanted to end with, Caroline? Oh, um, the story I wanted, to, well, when you do the thing about what's your favorite part. Oh, okay. Do you want to do that? Yeah, why don't we do that? Because um, Brittany is looking Brittany. for her favorite part. <laughs> what's your favorite part? This is the tortillas burning. Yeah, so tortillas burning was my favorite story and has some of my favorite lines. And mm-hmm. the reason that, so it's a story about um, a young woman who um, gets married to, um, who gets married and ends up living in a, in a bad situation, in poverty and in a dangerous household. And um, I'll just tell you what she says. She says, uh, when her grandma, her grandma used to say, uh, when you've got nothing else, you'll always have at least a tortilla to get you through. Learn to use them. Take a tortilla, an old one that's gone hard, and hold it over a flame. Watch the tortilla blacken and break. Take those ashes when you have nothing else. Take the ashes and rub them into your teeth with your gums. Smudge them, scrub them over your gums, all inside your mouth. Con un bucha de agua. Rinse and spit into the ground. Rinse very well. Lest they confuse you with a witch. La gente es bien bendeja. But she says, the things my my grandmother used to say, I often wondered what kind of situation would require me to burn a tortilla to clean my teeth. When when might I be without basic items like toothpaste or bath soap? So I'd have to have to find some elemental alternative to perform simple personal hygiene. It's hard to imagine what kind of thing would happen that would knock you back where your grandmother had been. It's a wonder even to me how I ended up on that pig farm. She ends up meeting a man and he takes her to his pig farm. And that's her life then. And then she has a baby. And one day he comes home, the man, and is going to beat her and her son with this humongous um, belt. And um, she gets right out of there. She gets out of there and she never goes back. And she leaves the tortilla burning on the flame. And I thought that was so, it's what I needed at that time. Yeah. When I read that story, mm. that she did it. She got out of there and she took her son. Yeah. And listened to her grandmother's advice. Yeah. 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 
There's so much great language in that one too. Did you find your passage, Brittany? Yes, I did. I I, I was just uh, like ruminating on how she's like, I didn't even take the tortilla. I now understand how you could be bereft of like you can have nothing and still like go forward. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Use the tools. I just yeah. I mean, say I like the way it goes back to the first story, Lumberjack Mom, um, because you know Lumberjack Mom, who we don't know her name, but you know, basically, you know, is just eating tortillas with a a smear of beans, you know, mm-hmm. because I think there was something about both of those stories that um, connected, and it it felt like the tortillas were in part some of that connection. At least in my brain. Just thinking about the lumberjack mom still makes me, it gets me sad all over again. I know. That passage where she was like, in, when they're in the wild, she's like, just let it die the way it should. So, okay. Great book, y'all. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, my passage. It's a common mistake, said any, to think of animals as noble creatures. I remember my mother saying it all the time. The dogs were better than humans because they protected their young. And that was more than she could say for many people. But I can tell you that animals are no better or worse than humans. And we are no better than they. They also take pleasure in killing. And then Fatih protested, I don't kill things for fun. Most people don't. But we all sometimes do mean things for fun. (laughs) And that was like a really good response. Yeah, you don't have to be killing, but you can be mean and delight in it. That's why, um, back to Samira, that's why she always liked the narrator. Yeah. She said, I liked you because you were mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mean. <laughs> you're the meanest thing ever. To be mean, to be mean <laughs> when you're a girl, right? You're not supposed to be mean. Right. Or angry. But for sure, you're not supposed to be mean. And those girls were mean. They were mean. Vicious. Yeah, they are vicious. Were they? Yes. Yes, they were mean. Everybody, not them. They were mean. Uh, I went to high school with them. Yeah, they were mean. Yeah, they were. They were nice when you were with them, though. Mm-hmm. They were. Yeah. yeah. But they were mean to everybody else. They did not mess around. Carmen was mean. <laughs> Samira was mean. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have a favorite passage. I just couldn't choose one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think one of the strongest things about these stories for me is how strong the beginnings and endings are, considering that they're short stories. I mean, I think people love Stephen King, right? I I like Stephen King. He's a good storyteller. He's terrible at endings. (laughs) He's terrible. I mean, you, you make it through a thousand pages of The Stand and then like the last 50 pages suck. Sorry, Stephen King. Um, I do think no, he's famously bad at them. Yeah, yeah, he's bad at endings, and I think a lot of people are bad at beginnings or endings or both. But when I look at the last story, Mimuero, that first sentence, everyone's moment comes eventually. Mm-hmm. It's such a great first sentence, and then the last sentence, which is the last sentence of the story and the last sentence of the book, this is turning out better than I expected. Oh yeah, that was so good. So good. That was so good. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I, I mean, I just think there's just the flow of this and the the way she's good at sort of jumping in at that right moment in the story, um, getting you really into it really quickly. I mean, you know, you read us the, the beginning of the tortillas burning story, Caroline, and 
you're right in there. You know, you know mm-hmm. about this woman, you know about her grandmother, you know about, you know, you, you know so much about this woman in, in a few paragraphs. Um, that's such a, an amazing skill. And I love the way the narrators are so very unknown in, in ways you don't know their names. It sort of allows you to see from the narrator's perspective a little bit more than you might otherwise. I don't know. I just, I think this collection was amazing. So. Yeah, well done. Great choice, Aubrey. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for it. I'm so glad that you both loved it. I I have one last question, which is, who do you think should read this? (laughs) Well, I'm going to loan it to my coworker next. So I think it's um, um, a wide interest. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, one of the things I said when I started reading this book was I've read so few um, Latino or Chicana um, books of short stories that my mind immediately goes to someone like Juno Diaz when I read this. And if I were to have read more of these stories growing up, I would have more to compare it with. So I believe that you know, stories like these ought to be a part of the canon, ought to be the part of things that everybody reads, right? So that yeah, we have diverse stories that we can all reach back to. So I think it should be read by anybody who's interested in reading short stories, or particularly possibly interested in, you know, Southern California. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I sort of feel like this is almost something that seniors in California mm-hmm. should read, seniors in high school, you know? Yeah. As I think... You know, there are some very mature themes, but I think the way so much is metaphorical is it's a really great age to to read this short story. And that, you know, it really does get you into different cultures in, in Southern California. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like um, it should be in the canon for our high school education. I mean, like in terms of uh, I mean, it's been a trillion years since I was in high school, but I remember we, I mean, in terms of themes, we read like uh, Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants. Like that's a story about abortion. Why, you know, this, why are we reading Hemingway still? Why are we, you know, great, great. But I feel like he gets his play. Whereas this is, you know, the writing is so lyrical, so tight, so upsetting, so captivating. And then this, themes and the people and them like I just think that there's it's so rich mm-hmm. all right so we liked it <laughs> thumbs up uh, uh anything else before we, we we sign off nothing else all right well thank you Brittany thank you Caroline thank you. appreciate it Aubrey, nice talking to you both great seeing you guys you too. so thanks again to Brittany and Caroline I really appreciate this this was a really fun conversation And a big thank you to our listeners. I hope that you are loving this, uh, enjoying these conversations, get something out of this. And we'd love to hear from you if you are. To find the whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcasting app. Next semester, the Policy Paycheck will be coming back with a new student host. It's going to be great. And you'll find links to some of the other things we talked about today, uh, including the several that I said that we would put on, on our website, bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. And if you are reading along with us, I hope you are, our first book of 2022 is going to be the 1619 Project. So, you know, we're going to talk about the controversy. We're going to talk to historians about what historians do and what the purpose of doing the work of history is and understanding 
sort of how the past can help us build a better future. So thanks again to my guests, to my producer, Jonathan Schwartz, and a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the brothers Hedden, Corey and Ryan. Corey's birthday is the day that we are recording. So happy birthday, Corey. Signing off, I'm Aubrey Hicks coming to you from Southern California. Until next time, be good to yourself, be good to your neighbors. Think about what we owe each other. 